Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. It's Monday, November 1st, and today we're going to be looking at how Christian nationalism in America serves to justify the militaristic interventionist policies abroad that would be considered unconstitutional at home. In her Canopy Forum article, American Jesus at Home and Abroad, Dr. Maeve McIvor of the University of Oxford shows how religion and America are mutually constitutive to the point that Protestant Christianity comes to stand for a good religion, voluntary and free, with all other religions practiced abroad thought to be bad, coercive, and mandated. How do Protestant Christianity and American exceptionalism operate not only abroad, but on a level that is deeply personal? And what effects do exceptionalist framing of sovereignty have on the individual and their understandings of what it means to be a person as well as what it means to be a nation? Find out in today's episode. I'm Janet Metzger, and this is American Jesus at Home and Abroad by Maeve McIver. Every now and then, social media resurfaces a meme I've come to think of as the American Jesus post. A screenshot from a conversation on Facebook, the post reads, The Bible was written entirely by the greatest American who ever lived, Jesus, followed by an apparently nonplussed observer asking, This is a joke or what? Although the original intentions of the author are unclear, is it a joke? Their words tend to be taken at face value, circulated by those looking to demonstrate that U.S. American Christians aren't particularly bright. Indeed, the sharers seem to suggest that these U.S. American Christians are uniquely, exceptionally, to use a term I'll return to, obtuse. Read through the lens of Elizabeth Shackman Heard and Winifred Fowler's Sullivan's co-edited At Home and Abroad, The Politics of American Religion, though, this anonymous poster's conflation of Jesus and U.S. nationalism becomes less obscure. As Heard and Sullivan argue, religion has always been central to American self-understanding, and a particular kind of religion at that. Indeed, according to this self-understanding, religion and America are mutually constitutive. Disestablishment, or the separation of church and state, is central to this story, with the First Amendment, which prohibits the establishment of religion while protecting the free exercise thereof, seen to promote both religion-compatible democracy and democracy-compatible religion. The United States, then, is not only a place of and for religion. Rather, it is a place where religion has been perfected. By contrast to the coercive, mandated, inherited, bad religion thought typical elsewhere, U.S. religion is imagined to be free, tame, and voluntary. Within this model, 
Protestant Christianity comes to stand for paradigmatically good religion, the kind of religion that shores up and becomes invisible within U.S. modernity. As with other aspects of U.S. American exceptionalism, this understanding of religion is enabled by what Hurd and Sullivan term an inside-outside dynamic that applies different rules at home and abroad. These rules not only determine what counts as religion for domestic and foreign policy, but assumes that outsiders and internal others ought to be converted to American-style religion, too. As such, they work to justify the kind of interventionist policies abroad that would be ruled unconstitutional at home. Military and missionary expansion go hand in hand, as Pamela E. Clausen puts it in the volumes afterward, the arrogance of American power is profoundly rooted in a Protestant and wider Christian repertoire of metaphor, justification, ritual, and authoritative knowledge. It's from this vantage point that the American Jesus Post starts to make more sense. If the United States is the site of religion perfected, and perfected religion looks a lot like text-centric Protestant Christianity, why not make Jesus both a U.S. citizen and the author of the Bible? From this perspective, the Facebook poster's personal Jesus is just another example of the American exceptionalism this volume tracks, or, indeed, a parody of it. References to U.S. American exceptionalism tend to conjure images of macro-level geopolitics, both historic and contemporary. Ongoing imperialism in Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, and the Pacific. The post-war occupation of Japan. Today's technocratic efforts to counter violence extremism on the international stage. At Home and Abroad contains astute analyses of these macro-level moments. See, for example, the chapters by Nancy Binger, David Maldonado Rivera, Jolian Baraka Thomas, and Elizabeth Shackman Hurd. Alongside the project's analysis of exceptionalism writ large, though, is a reminder that American religion's inside-outside dynamic goes beyond military strategy or bureaucratic wrangling. Indeed, as the American Jesus Post illustrates, this dynamic can be deeply personal, with exceptionalist framings of sovereignty having a profound effect on individual aspirations and understandings of both personhood and nationhood. Take, for example, the case of Jesse Sampter, as explored by Sarah Imhoff in the chapter Homemaking in Palestine. Samter, a Jewish-American woman who moved from New York to Palestine in 1919, illustrates the complexity of the dyads that organize the at-home-and-abroad volume, inside-outside, religion, politics, and, of course, home-abroad. For Samter, who embraced Zionism after hearing the poet Hyman Siegel speak at the Unitarian Church she was then attending, an embrace that would ultimately lead to her moving to Palestine and giving up her U.S. citizenship, the United States both was and was not home, 
just as Palestine both was and was not abroad. In Imhoff's telling, Samter's religious and political aspirations cannot be understood without exploring the unique ways in which she was both insider and outsider, regardless of her geographic location. As an anthropologist, and therefore professionally committed to the kinds of stories other fields might reject as anecdotal, I find the book's inclusion of these personal narratives particularly compelling. The value of studying an individual like Samter is exactly that, her individuality. She is not representative of any of the intersecting identities she claimed. Indeed, Imhoff's forthcoming biography of Samter focuses on those aspects of her life, love, and body that an outsider might struggle to reconcile with her religio-politics. Her experiences were undoubtedly her own. And yet she is, in some ways, exemplary of the dynamics Heard and Sullivan point to, the exceptionalist conceptualization of American religion at home, and the way this idea translates abroad. As Imhoff writes, Samter developed a sense of what religion is and should be in the United States and brought that version with her as she crossed boundaries. While she exchanged one home for another, her conception of religion remained relatively steady. The way she lived religion did not always reflect the American, Protestantized, individualist understanding outlined previously. The way she thought about religion, though, often did. Her letters home, for example, suggest an understanding of, or a preference for, the kind of religion that is rooted in individual experience even as she embraced the collective as central to Jewish religious life. In this way, she took American religion with her when she went abroad. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, Interactions listeners. This is Justin Latteroff from the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. If you like this episode, you might be interested in John Witte's new book, The Blessings of Liberty, Human Rights and Religious Freedom in the Western Legal Tradition. This book explores the role that religion has played in the formation of rights in the Western legal tradition. Today, some religious critics of human rights see human rights as a betrayal of Christianity while other critics see religious freedom as a threat to human rights. John Witte responds to both of these challenges and insists that protecting religious freedom is actually the best way to protect many other fundamental rights, despite the fact that religious freedom and other fundamental rights can sometimes clash. Are human rights a modern invention, and is religious freedom a mere obstacle to human rights today? Explore these questions and more with John Witte in The Blessings of Liberty, new from Cambridge University Press. Find out more by clicking the link in the episode description. Thank you for listening to Interactions.
As the case of Jesse Samter illustrates, Heard and Sullivan's paired binaries are productive, not in spite, but because of their instability. No sooner do you think you have a grip on home than you must reckon with its various abroads. This is so regardless of the home or abroad from which one starts. Indeed, being pushed to consider how the inside-outside dynamic applied to my research on evangelicalism in England, an activity I undertook as one of five emerging scholars affiliated to the loose-funded At Home and Abroad project from which this volume emerged, proved enormously fruitful as I worked to turn my doctoral research into a book. The final product, Representing God, Christian Legal Activism in Contemporary England, provides an ethnographic account of Christian interest litigation in a non-U.S. context. It focuses on the growing number of primarily Protestant Christians in England going to court to argue that they face anti-Christian discrimination. These claimants are sometimes spoken of as having adopted a confrontational American approach to public engagement. And although the similarities should not be overstated, there is some truth to this assessment. The high-profile test cases they generate are often strikingly similar to the headline-grabbing religious freedom cases taken by U.S. Christian legal organizations, including Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece Cake Shop. While not exactly what Heard and Sullivan mean by the term, many people in England view this litigation as religion American style. But in contrast to the situation facing their peers in the disestablished United States, Christian legal activists in England are operating in a country with an established Protestant church. For an interesting history of the development and divergence of these two models of church-state relations, see Evan Hafeley's chapter, A Home Made Abroad. Taken in light of At Home and Abroad, then, one way of looking at my project is to ask, what does it mean to apply politico-legal strategies developed in a context of disestablishment to one in which Protestantism remains the established faith? What happens when the logics of home and abroad are swapped, when inside is applied outside? Heard and Sullivan argue that U.S. disestablishment allows Protestant Christianity to operate both as a religion and not a religion, to not be a religion in disestablished mode, but to be a religion in free exercise mode. This argument also weaved throughout at home and abroad's companion volume, Theologies of American Exceptionalism. So conceived, U.S.-style religious freedom carves out protections for Christianity when its norms depart from those of the state, even as the frequent overlap of these norms enables a kind of unofficial Protestant establishment. In England, however, Christian establishment is a fact. 
In this context, I argue, taking on legal challenges to protect Christian values risks the marginalization of those same values, as moralities once woven into the fabric of national life are separated out from their quotidian context and rebranded as religion or religiously motivated. By taking freedom of religion test cases and reframing their once commonplace beliefs as the niche interests of a minority group, these Christians, in many ways cultural insiders, increasingly find themselves on the outs. In applying the inside-outside dynamic to my own work, I hope to have demonstrated its utility for scholars of religion who— although they may not be American religionists in a narrow sense, have much to gain from thinking along with Hurd, Sullivan, and their contributors. At Home and Abroad shows just how abroad the field of American religion is, and how parochial, in a sense, the exceptionalist narrative telegraphed in gleeful repostings of the American Jesus meme turns out to be. For those keen to distance themselves from the presumed excesses of religion and or the United States of America, it can be comforting to present what otherwise looks like parody as an accurate reflection of theopolitics. After all, the more ludicrous you take U.S. American religion to be, the less likely you think you are to fall under its spell. No doubt this explains not only the greatest American who ever lived post, but its many pop culture variations, historic and contemporary, including its portrayal in film, its send-up in song, and its frequently apocryphal attribution to farmers, preachers, and politicians from 1881 to the present. Indeed, the meme's longevity suggests the depth of our investment in this idea of American religious exceptionalism. If it weren't real, we'd probably have to invent it. That was American Jesus at Home and Abroad by Maeve McIver. You can find the full article on Canopy Forum by following the link in the episode description. Canopy Forum and the Interactions Podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen. I am your narrator, Janet Metzger. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.